Hey everyone, welcome back. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Mark Kaufman, a co-founder and CEO of Import2, a software company that helps transfer business or personal data between cloud applications. Today, we're talking with Mark about the risks and dangers of data lock-in. But before we get into all that, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Oleg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you. Um, let's start with this. Uh, where are you located today? Where are you recording from? Um, uh, yeah, I'm doing it from my home at Sunnyvale in California. Awesome. That's, uh, yeah, I used to work right over there uh, in Sunnyvale. I don't know why I'm doing conjecture now, but uh, yeah, you're at home. We're all at home. Uh, it's COVID. So why don't you tell us, uh, let's get started with the interview. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Uh, you know, what do you want the listeners to know? As I mentioned, like I'm, I'm now based in Silicon Valley in California. Originally, I'm coming from Tallinn, Estonia, so I know what rain is and what snow is, <laughs> and uh, like I, I know the other side of the world too. Uh, I also lived before moving to to the U.S. I lived in Sweden. I've spent a couple of years in Russia, and even had the time to live like a bit shorter, but still in Germany. So you can say that I've. I've seen different places with different cultures across my career. I think that was very important for for my understanding, like how things work. And that, that's why I typically like to tell the story of like where I lived before. But if you if you ask me professionally, like I I sometimes joke about myself that I'm a startup addict and like I had my first entrepreneurship experience somewhere around 16 years old when I was doing tennis lessons. Back in high school, that was really cool. Like that's when I could make money, and when you're 16, like every dollar is like a huge money for you. So it was that was real freedom. Where were you at the time, 16? I was in Tallinn. That's where I lived with my parents, and uh, I spent uh, like I, I spent my whole school life learning tennis, and then <laughs> eventually I was able to to give lessons myself. But then after this uh, school entrepreneurship, then my first startup was in first year of university. And then now I'm, uh, I'm co-founder and CEO of Import2, which I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about today. And in between, there are a bunch of other startups. Too long to tell all the stories. That's probably would take another hour if we go. Is there anything that drew you to entrepreneurship and startups? Um, from your background or the way you grew up, anything like that? Because it sounds like you work a lot with with startups and entrepreneurship. There's a nice public answer, but I think real answer is I just couldn't work for somebody else. Like I hated when somebody was managing me. And I realized very early in my life that I want to do things my way. And like, I think entrepreneurship is the best way <laughs> if you want to do it the way how you think is right. And I had strong opinions quite early in my life. It, it was very hard in the beginning of my career when you have strong opinions. I probably learned slower because of that. But at the same time, that pushed me into the right direction. And in my opinion, doing startups, because I think that's, the, that's one of the best ways to be creative and uh, give your contribution to the world. Yeah, I thought that I thought that was a great answer. You know, here on Angel Nears, we're all about real, raw answers, uh, not the public-facing ones that sound good. So we're we're here today to talk about uh, Import Two. Tell me about how you started that company and and maybe what went into the idea for it. 
Yeah, so Impart2 as a company, it was a pivot from another idea. Like we originally, this business was started as a cloud integration platform. And then uh, this failed pretty quickly. We didn't have enough customers, but then we had um, we had some relationship with different SaaS vendors and we started to talk around. And then one of our friends who was CEO of a CRM company, he asked like, oh, guys, I see you in trouble. Like, do you want to do some consulting? We need to help people to move data out of high rise. Like, can you help us with this? And... Um, we were not fond of idea of doing consulting. So we thought like, oh, let's create a product out of this. And then uh, we started to productize this idea of like moving data from one place to another. And we literally started to get customers like from first day. We set up a page without having a product, set up a page, created a paywall button, and somebody start, paid us like in the first week or even like a couple of days. Uh, even though we didn't have a product. So like that's how it all started. And then from there, we were iterating and iterating. Figuring out how to move the data now that you're paid. Exactly, exactly. Th that's how it was like really started. Like we just stumbled upon it by listening to somebody like voicing what's the real problem they have. Yeah, so how did that grow as a company and, and what kind of problem did you center around? Could you just like keep defining the problem? I think we uh, polished uh, the understanding of the problem as we talked more and more with the customers. So to date, I think we have more than 50,000 customers we worked with. And um, today I can say we realized that the problem was all around access to the data that businesses need. So we started with the data migration. That's when you need to switch a software and go from legacy system to a new system. So... And here it's obvious, like, oh, like to move my data to the new system, like, first of all, I need to get access out of the old system. But then the same problem is actually reappearing in all other circumstances. Like another great example is what if you need to do analytics on your business? Then one huge issue is um, how do you get data access from it? Or if, um, or if you want, like, or if you want to do whatever you want with the data that you own, First of all, you have to grab an access to this data set. So that's, uh, that's the big problem. And at the same time, very small problem on a level of uh, you really sometimes just like, have, like I, I need this right now. And vendors today are making it not super easy to access. And that's where the whole idea of Import2 as a business was, was around and up to date. So that that's that's how we see the problem in the market space right now. You said something interesting there, like like the vendors don't make the data accessible. Why do you think historically that's the case? I, I think history starts with Salesforce, but uh, probably like to be fair to them, it, it's not just just them. It's uh, it's just the idea that businesses started to move to cloud and to the software as a service model of uh, delivery. And when that happened, your data, like previously, it was on your server. It wasn't inside your physical address. <laughs> you could go and download it or you can like go to the server and see like, oh, I have it. It's mine. But as soon as you move to the cloud, vendor becomes responsible for managing your IT and data, including. And then when that happens... Sometimes it was uh, with 
ill intent. Sometimes it's just because it's happened like this. Vendors started to make those um, access to data not their priority. And I kind of understand, like for for SaaS vendor, like for them priorities, like building better features, building better outputs or better workflows, like that's what they're focused on. But uh, doing proper access to data, that's always an afterthought. But uh, the problem here is that um, the data is not vendors. The data is actually owned by a company legally. So that's where the conflict and issue starts. I see. I see. So essentially to reiterate, like when everything, when all businesses, not all businesses, but there was this push for business to move to the cloud, when everything moved to the cloud, people's data went from living on their own machines, their own servers, their own racks to external. Now somebody else owns the machine, you still own the data, but the machine is not yours. It's not under your roof. Someone else is managing it. This created this data access job that you are working on. Exactly. Exactly. But it all started with birth of software as a service. <laughs> yeah. So can you talk, uh, can you just like keep talking about it, define uh, data lock-in and what that is? It's um, uh, it's a simple question, but it's not, right? Because there are different flavors and there are different tricks. But uh, I would define it uh, as data lock-in is the trick that software vendor uses to make it difficult for you to switch away from their platform. I think that's, um, that's to the core essence. And, and again, sometimes they're doing it willingly, sometimes because of lack of resources, sometimes it's just like hard for them to solve this problem. But in its essence, it's like the principle or like things that software vendors do to lock you in inside their platform. And do you see this across industries? We're still we're still speaking in pretty general terms. Like, you know, we're talking about data, we're talking about vendors, but uh, what do, what even industries like are your customers or are you in? I, I can bring you examples from different <laughs> different worlds. So let let's take the most personal things. So, for example, I'm a user of Evernote. Uh, I, I don't know if you use it at all as well, or use some other note taking app. But imagine, and uh, I just checked recently, Evernote is 20 years old company already. And I have probably 10 or even more years of notes in my Evernote. So now imagine you're thinking like, oh, there's more shiny, better note-taking app. I want to switch. And uh, so like, just think about this, like how you're going to get all those notes out of Evernote. Yeah. Well, I, I was just gonna say, I, you asked if I do use a note-taking app. I do use like um, a note-taking app. I'm 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 using Notion. It's kind of the hot one these days, right? But I have thought about this challenge of how do I take my notes from Apple in in Apple Notes and put them in my Notion? And my solution has been just not to do it. Exactly, exactly, and that's my solution as well. So what I'm doing, like I'm paying for Evernote, and then I'm using Notion, and now I'm using also Rome Research. And like I have three note-taking apps, even though I'm like kind of a guru in data movements, but that's still, it's a challenge that, that I can't resolve. At least that's reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> so this problem is like big from personal stuff to 
to very big enterprises, uh, software and things like that. So there are like, uh, I'm sure we're going to talk more and more examples today, but I think Evernote is probably the most personal that you can feel like, oh my God, like, damn, like if I lose those notes, like it's 10 years of my thoughts and it's like, no, no, like I can't. Uh, yeah. C- could you give us more examples? Like the, the, no- the note taking one is great, but um, you mentioned like enterprise, what kind of enterprise customers do you have? In enterprise, I think the best, best niche is a CRM because that's what um, businesses value a lot and that's what they switch very often. So for example, um, if you remember back in the days, Basecamp had this great CRM software, Highrise, right? And then uh, this um, uh, the software was very popular among small businesses, but then they started like now I don't know if they closed or if they're not taking more customers, but like it, it's definitely not the market leader anymore. And then for when you would export data out of high rise, they would give you contacts, they would give you companies, but they would give you activity history and notes in a format, which would be not a CSV. So you cannot import that into any other software. So this is a good example of like, Locking on the CRM side where you kind of get the data, but in a form that you cannot use. And there are enormous another amount of examples in CRM space where you would get, if you do an export, you would get 20% of your data, but not 100% of the data. And like that's what we deal with on a daily basis when you switch to HubSpot, to Salesforce, to Pipedrive, all those software where what right now on a wave and growing, like uh, people are having this problem every day and that's where we help a lot. Yeah, so how do you help? Uh, what can you do? I imagine if you have 20% of the data, can you get it to 100%? Or if, if if it's not in a CSV, is there a way to turn the format into a, can, can you format it into CSV? Like what, what can you do? So we as a company, like our main solution is that we, we go and work with API with vendor with vendor api and then typically apis are more wider open than than regular end user exports and through the api you can access more data so that's uh, that's our that's what our technology is based on we are getting access through the api and we very often work with the vendor themselves and try to extend this api so there's more data available to the end customers. And is that repeatable? It seems like a really manual kind of process to me. Uh, there are different use cases, what you do with the data. So the data access itself, yeah, that's kind of manual. But for example, if you want to do business analytics, that's a very repeatable problem where you need to have constant or sometimes real-time data access. So that's, um, that's an example where issue of data access becomes like a daily problem. And um, uh, and there are more uses like of data for the businesses, like uh, especially now with different artificial intelligence solutions coming to life. The more data you have, obviously, the better solutions you can build. You can use that in your operations and so on, so on. So it really depends on the business how they use the data. But the main point here is uh, the data is owned by the business. Let them figure out how to use it. And that that's, I guess, is uh, 
our mission is like, let the data be open and then businesses will find out what to use with that. So to, to come up with the example, like I, I'm from Estonia, as I mentioned, like uh, uh, I, I lived uh, during the USSR times. And then uh, if you uh, if you know the history and you remember like uh, how this works, like for example, the land was not private in, uh, in USSR. So as soon as the switch happened, there was like a huge business boom. Like everything started to grow because people got the land and they figured it out. But normal excuse before would say like, oh, guys, you will not know what to do with that. Let us manage this. Like we know better, but it's not. <laughs> the people who own the thing, they will know the best what to do with this. Right. Ownership. If you feel ownership, you're going to be inclined to participate, if, if participate is the right word, but I, I'm trying to connect the dots there. So your mission is essentially to make that data accessible, get it to the person asking for it, but not necessarily to do the analytics yourself, right? So I would say on the mission side, yes, like our goal, like I, I think our goal is achieved when businesses can access every bit of data that they own from this, from the cloud. So then, then I can say like, okay, uh, our job is done <laughs> and we, we can switch to the new, uh, new, new level of problems in terms of tool set, what we provide we've been a few years in the business. So we started to provide some more higher level offerings compared to just the simple data access. And for example, like if you come to import two, export of data with import two is always free. So we don't charge you for accessing data. So it's, um, uh, it's a surprising twist, right? But we just, we, we don't want to repeat the same mistakes that vendors do. So we don't charge you for what is yours. And like, I, I think it's philosophically wrong to charge business to, to get their contacts or notes. It's it just like <laughs> wrong. And we provide that for free, but instead we charge for things like data backup. For example, if you want to do, con like if you want to solve continuity issue, like you want to make sure that you have data copy on your servers and you need to set up ongoing process, like those kind of things are free. We also, right now this year, we are launching a data reports solution, which is, uh, which is not like exactly an analytics tool, but it's a tool where, where you can work with your data from SaaS apps, uh, like in Excel. So you can download the data, do some slicing and dicing of that data, and work with that and maybe send it to BI system, but basically make sure that for the reporting purposes, you have full access to the data set. So we charge for more higher level solutions on top of the data, but the main thing, what we're trying to solve, <laughs> like, which is in our mission, like we, we give it for free. Yeah. I want to sort of paint the picture of why this is so important. Can you talk more about the implications of data lock-in and, and when it occurs? What does that kind of keep the the user or the owner of that data from from doing? Yeah, it's it, it's a great great question. So, I think if you take like a s simplest example, which we already talked about, like if you can switch the software, you're using legacy software like from twenty years ago, from thirty years ago. We have customers today who are still using Act 
CRM. And ACT CRM, let, let me let me Google it right away, like because it's I wasn't born then for sure. Okay, sorry, I was born. It was founded in Dallas, Texas in 86. Okay. Uh, that's what happened. And by the way, this is a great software. Like I, I like actually ACT. They have a lot of great ideas, but still it's from 86. And we have customers every day who are switching. And the reason they stayed because they couldn't switch. So that's, uh, that's one obvious thing what happens if you, if you don't, if you have a data lock-in, but that's like, that's, let's say that's the tip of the iceberg. I think the real problem happens with, um, with this data ownership thing, many businesses would be able to become more data driven if they would fully own their data. They would be able to come up with smarter marketing campaigns. They would be able to have more efficient uh, logistics. They would, like, for example, if you imagine Amazon, like they have a lot of data <laughs> about their business, and that's probably why they have their own cloud solutions and everything. They using data every second, and the same thing would happen to smaller businesses if they have it. Like there would be solutions built on top of the data. There would be use cases and everything like we, we just need to open it up and ecosystem will figure it out what to do with that so that's uh, that, that's how i see that i would agree this is probably not a great example but you know it's like when you when you move into your first place like when i was living with my parents and i was like living at my parents i didn't care about doing dishes or cleaning clothes or really anything until i moved out on my own and then i like owned my space and then i really care about what i did with it and it was kind of like that that ownership was the most important thing so it's all about getting people to kind of own their their own data and they'll they'll make the best decisions with yeah i, I agree ownership is a very critical word here like uh the mindset of business will change as they realize that they actually own it. They don't have to beg for access to data. Like it's, that's theirs. Like I, I believe there will be a lot of advances done as, uh, as the data becomes in hands of the actual businesses. Yeah. And is, is data lock-in always bad? I, I, I would assume yes, but are there any cases where like, lock-in is not a bad thing it's maybe protecting the user from themselves or something like that that's a that's a tricky one so it's like asking me like is freedom always good right i'll, I'll have to think a lot to give you like real answer but I, let, let me use example of living with kids and parents so parents would very often limit kids freedom for the sake of their safety right and like, I'm not going to judge like what level or how good it is or how bad, but like everybody can relate who was a kid or who, uh, who has kids himself, like how much you have to limit the kid at what age and so on. So I think the line is somewhere there. Like there are some safety cases where it might be reasonable, but at the same time, if you are a business owner, like, do you want to be treated as a kid in the business relationship or do you want to be like uh, responsible for your things? Like, I, I know my answer, like, I definitely want to make my own decisions. So like, but, but that's a very philosophical question. Another, but there's one example of good lock-in, which I would, which I would bring. It's not data lock-in, it's a feature lock-in. If you have the best feature that nobody else provides, 
like I'll pay for that lock-in. Like I'm okay if you've done something which nobody else has done and you're giving me better product, that's a good lock-in. But it's it's not around data. It's around you better solving my problem than anybody else on the market. I like that's what I would love vendors to focus on. And hopefully, if there is less data lock-in, there will be more feature lock-in and vendors will be just building better software. Yeah. I have a philosophical answer to, to the same question, and that is like everything in moderation, right? <laughs> so let's talk about the solution. We've talked about the problem. We've sort of painted the, that picture. Um, is there a common solution to this issue of data lock-in? I don't think there's common solution. And that's why we exist as a company. I think like if there would be a solution, there would be like no money to be made for us like as a business. And there would be literally no problem to solve. So I I think on a high level, what I would recommend is like when you signing up a deal with the vendor, like ask them like, what is their practice? Make sure that's, um, that's something you think about, right? You will still not get 100% uh, what you need, but at least consider that. So bugging a vendor is actually very effective. Like if thousand customers will come and say like, guys, we need you to provide us export of those kind of data sets we need, they will do it. Like if everybody's sitting quietly, they will just focus on building another shiny sharing Twitter button or something like stories feature or something else. So it's, um, it's really like if we understand ownership as customers, like we will have to demand it. But literally, I think the real, real answer here is like, yeah, just call me and like, we'll fight with you against those data locking issues. Like that's, that's why we exist. You will see in our Twitter account, if you check and follow import on Twitter, we bug vendors like almost every day. We, and like, we don't have authority, like we will bug vendors, Salesforce, whoever makes a mistake, like we will point it out. And, uh, at the same time, we are good partners with them on the other side. Like we work with them to solve this, but it doesn't let them off the hook. We, we think you have to have attention to the problem and it, in parallel on the product side, we make our solution free for the data expert. So we show them like, look, if, if a small vendor, like who is times less than you can afford themselves to make it free, then what excuse do you have? Uh, to do the same. So there is a common solution. It's just to call Mark and have him figure it out. Let's unpack it a bit. Uh, let's continue to unpack it. So how does Import2 help the customers avoid data lock-in or or at least get out of it? I think we already covered it a bit. I, I, I think our key product is data export, which we offer for free. And you can download data from 100 cloud applications. And we add new software systems, integrations, like every week there's new coming out. So that's, that's our main solution. And then on top of that, we also offer products such as data backup, data reports, and data import. Those are the products which make you utilize data better in your business. So like if, if to say it in a, in a simple words, like we help small and medium sized businesses to to become data-driven and we provide them an infrastructure 
for them to be able to set it up and data solutions, because there's a lot of software solutions out there, but there's really few options for businesses on the data side. And that's what we do for them. Can you talk more about this problem of data locking in 2021? You know, it sounds like it's relevant for sure this year. Give me a sense of like, is it a problem that's getting worse? Is it slowly getting better with companies like yours? Where do we stand with this problem of data lock-in in 2021? I don't think it's a, it's a fresh problem. I don't think it's like uh, today is like something different than year before. Uh, I, I think there's one trend which is um, which is important is that businesses are becoming managed remotely more and more. So if, and when that happens, like previously, the information was shared at the water cooler or at the office. You would come and people would talk to each other, and there was like a feeling that you know what's going on in the business. Now, when things are remote and we're sitting in Zoom and Slack, the data will become like water for the business operations. It will be, you will have to drink it. You will have to drink it to understand what's really going on. So things like statistics, analytics, metrics, raw data, like information, that will become more important. And that's where I think current trends are increasing that issue. But still, I think it's quite a long-term issue. It, it's for 20 years back, and I think it's going to continue until there will be coming up something better than software as a service. Or, or until this like, movement what we have about making this data more available when that becomes more powerful and like we overpower the SaaS vendors. But I think it's going to be like virus and antivirus fight. Like there will always be new tricks that vendors will find. <laughs> there will be always for us some new things to search for. At least you won't get bored. Just today we had internal discussion where we like, and this is a long-term problem. We were discussing internally, like, because there was some big customer who was trying us to make available solution for Gmail emails export. And uh, we have been postponing that for a long time. And so the problem with Gmail is that Gmail would tell you that as a third party vendor, you will be able to access API that would access email only if you pass annual security review that would cost up to $75,000. So and look, just think about it. Why are they doing this? Are they not giving you any requirements on the data security? They're not giving you like, oh, you do this. Like we care about security. They just tell you they, in, in this documentation, it just say like, this is up to $75,000. Basically, they just scare you off with the money so they don't have to deal with you. And I think that's a very creative new way of data lock-in because third-party vendors cannot build solutions on top. And then uh, that means you will stay as a Gmail user because like you have no better choices and uh, you, you are just stuck. And, and this is coming from don't be evil company. Give me a sense 
for how businesses or what kind of businesses are affected? Does this hurt small to medium businesses more than large ones with more resources or or is there some nuance that I'm not seeing there? Yeah, I think SMB is more more prone to this issue because when you're a big enterprise like a bank or a hospital like and then you go and negotiate with Salesforce or somebody like you can set up your terms. You can power negotiate what you need you can demand them things like but even if you're not that huge and not powerful you can have a lawyer to read the documentation before you sign when you're an smb you never hire a lawyer to read the terms of service you just like go because everybody else is going that direction and you are stuck like i have a good example my wife she she's an owner of sport gymnastics club and uh, she was setting up a special software for gymnastic clubs and of course i was helping her and like i'm jumping into the meeting with this vendor and like asking my questions i was like give me api give me csv exports and like we don't do anything like that we don't give you anything and i'm like what the hell like it shouldn't be like this like they said up to you, like go find somebody else. And there is nobody else because it's so niche market. They are like 95% market leader and they just don't care. And like, there's nothing she can do. And I'm telling her like, that's against everything what I'm doing for the last 10 years, but you have to do it because you just have no choice. But that's, that's the reality. Do you have any more kind of unique examples of how data gets locked in? Similar to the the, the the Gmail example from earlier, because I, I imagine there's a bunch of ways this can happen, and I'm I'm sure I'm just not seeing it all. I can give you some fun parts. Like just recently, I, I think yesterday somebody on our team discovered that for Zendesk, if you want to do an export of your data, they do have it right. So they have the export functionality, but to enable this, you have to write support and beg them to enable that for you. And, and, and we wrote, of course, immediately the question to send us, which we didn't get an answer. Like, guys, like, what's the purpose of this extra step and extra torture? Like, wh- what's wrong of giving this feature right away? But like, and I think like this just, I'm sure there's some kind of funny answer that you will get as a customer, like why they're trying to treat you like a kid and why it's so good for you that you're not having access to this but like there are more and more examples like this where it just doesn't make sense at all like why this extra step so that's that's one of the examples from like literally last few days then um, there are more cases where i think evernote is one of those the evernote would give you export of your notebook in an enex format like which is an xml special XML of that Evernote created and you as a normal non-technical person would look into that and would like, blah, like nothing to do with this <laughs> because you would never read your notes in XML. And, and that's another way of um, let's say making your life difficult. I, I heard some rumors, we're not in healthcare business, but like there's a lot of, because as soon as we start talking about data lifting and there's somebody in healthcare business, they, they start telling me some stories of their own. And 
the thing what happens there, but and I, I think you know that space maybe even better than I, is that you would get data in PDFs, like instead of CSV or database, like whatever XML, like that's okay. Like some developers can figure it out, but PDF export, like that doesn't doesn't make sense. But that's sometimes what you get from from the vendor because they have to give you data and they give it legally, but in PDF format. And then you have to, I don't know, type it in manually or what, what's their expectation. But obviously that's not for making your life easier. No, no. But maybe you could come up with a computer vision machine learning algorithm to process your data out of the PDF. No, actually that's that's a, that's a example close and dear to my heart. When I'm not podcasting, I'm, I'm working at a uh, electronic health record company, Dr. Chrono. And uh, yeah, th- interoperability is the, the the industry term. Basically, it's this idea that patient data, patient records should be shareable. If you see a doctor and they have records on what happened from your hospital, if you move to a different state or country, you should be able to access that data. A lot of those vendors or a lot of those hospitals will charge you a big sum to access your health records. And it's your health data. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. So yeah, during this whole conversation, I've been kind of thinking about that. But do you have, do you have any thoughts on how to build software products in a way that's less vulnerable to this problem of data lock-in that we're running into moving forward? Absolutely. Like we have, uh, we have even a checklist, which we provide to the vendors. Like when they, like there's some startups coming to us and say like, oh, we want to build import tool to help customers easy move data into our platform. And we tell them, okay, but please start with first making export easy from out of your platform. Uh, but I, I think I think we should take example from Amazon. Like uh, if you remember, like when Amazon was starting, they had free returns, I don't know, from day one or very early in their in their life cycle. And then it looked like crazy idea. Like, oh my God, people will start returning us our orders and like it's going to be it's going to make them out of business but in reality that makes people trust and order more and i think the same principle is what software as a service vendor if they apply it i think if you are like making data available openly from the beginning that sets you up with a relationship based on trust instead of the relationship based on lock-in and that's going to help you long-term. And and in my opinion, uh, this is very arguable, but I think the most open software as a service vendor today from the data perspective is Salesforce. If you look into their export capability, they have their own problems, right? I'm, I'm not saying they're perfect, but compared to others, they provide you full export of all data tables. Like they have built-in data reporting solution, which allows you to download many types of data in different formats. And again, it's a big assumption, but is it one of the reasons why they are so successful? But what I can say for sure, it definitely isn't hurting them being open. So I, I think SaaS vendors should think from that perspective, if you are, if you are open, that's going to help you. Like locking in is not long-term solution. It's going to help you to get the quarter better, but not long-term success. 
So opening up might improve the relationships you have with others. Are we talking about software? Or are we talking about people in communication? I'm fully in the world of software, but, but definitely you can, uh, like, as we've talked about freedom today and uh, kids' relationship, I, I think this is quite a rule which can be applied in many different areas. Uh, I, I think being open, allowing freedom, respecting, like, this, this, the same thing will happen in relationships and the same thing happens business relationships or when you're choosing software, like if things are based on trust, <laughs> that's much better than, uh, uh, than the opposite. Yeah, agreed. All right, well, I love that thought. I think it's, um, I always love ending the show with kind of a big lesson and I, I think we just hit it. So uh, before we get out of here, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you, maybe learn more and uh, find out more about Import2? The best way to reach out to me is on Twitter, at Mark Kaufman. Awesome. All right, Mark. Well, thank you for joining. Uh, we're going to end the show there. If you liked our episode, please, if you liked this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating, especially if it's a good one. Mark, thanks for joining the show. We really appreciate your time. And uh, it was it was great to learn about data lock-in. Thanks a lot, Oleg. Oh.